Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to You the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people in the courts of the house of the Lord in Your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. My prayer is that this becomes more than ink on a page, but it becomes the Word of God to people who are hungry and thirsty for it. This summer, my prayer has been that the song of the summer, the thing that's echoing in your head, is not something by the Chainsmokers or Coldplay. Uh, my prayer is that the song of the summer that's kind of echoing in your own brain on a regular basis are the kinds of substantive truths that we find in the Psalms or the songbook or hymn book, even the prayer book of Jesus in the Psalms. That's my prayer. My prayer is that it, we saw even the last couple of weeks that in your distress you will find the thing boiling up for you, from your own soul or the things that you've been ruminating and meditating upon, truths that we saw like in Psalm 3, 4, and 5 that our rest and our hope, our shield is the Lord. He is our sustenance. He is the, thing that, he's the one that provides for us. He cares for us. We saw in the last few weeks that He is the one who is listening and we are calling to even in our distress. And so that the very words that kind of boil up, I don't know what song you woke up in your head, my prayer is that more and more we become a people who the thing that's echoing in our head, the thing that we tend to fall back on and repeat are the words of the Psalms. Why is that? The most important reason, I think, is that because the Psalms are quoted by the New Testament authors more than any other book in the Old Testament. Jesus did it. And so we want to do the same, such that even as Jesus cried out and quoted Psalm 22 from the cross in, his, in the depths of his agony, in this moment where he was betrayed, the moment where he was abandoned, he cried out to God in the words of the Psalms. 
an homage, a, a callback, if you will, to the 22nd Psalm to remind it. Look, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, but I call out to the God, as we saw in Psalm 22, the God who saved our fathers, who delivered the people who came before me. How much, so, how much more so can I hope that God will deliver me? Those are my prayers. Those are the things that I hope are kind of digging or like you dig up in your own soul from the Psalms. And so Psalm 116 is in a whole section of what we would call the halal Psalms. That is the, the praise, the adoration, and the worship of God. So I want you to see we're in a section of the Psalms that even though some of them are disjointed, maybe the one Psalm doesn't have anything to do with the next one, this isn't the case. So even if you like look back with me, if you will, to Psalm 113, turn the page and you'll see the very last phrase in Psalm 113 is what? You see it? Praise the Lord, just like the end of Psalm 116, okay? And then the very, uh, we see this, uh, wait, 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 like, if you skip forward to 115, you'll see the same kind of a theme toward the last word in Psalm 115 is what? You see it? Praise the Lord. The first verse of Psalm 117, what? It's one of the shortest psalms. Praise the Lord, all nations. So there's this section here of psalms that are meant to call us to praise. And Psalm 116 calls us to praise and there's two different things going on. First one is it is a call to thanksgiving in the midst of struggle. And then next week we'll see the kind of the theme that runs through it is the call to thanksgiving in the midst of death. As we contemplate death, we're not afraid of it, but I want to use this particular time that we get together to define some of the words and then we'll start to put it all together this next week. So he begins by saying, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Why? Why do we love the Lord? Because we have three things. He hears the voice, hears our voice, says, My pleas and my pleas for mercy. And then we see because he has inclined his ear to me. So we we see the psalmist saying he loves the Lord. Why? Because he has heard his voice, because he's heard his pleas for mercy, and because not only has he heard, but now God is inclining his ear to him. So this is uh, an important thing for us. When we think about these kinds of concepts like love, we tread very carefully. Hopefully, uh, you've heard me say this many times, but the Bible in the Old Testament and the Hebrew and the New Testament and the Greek has multiple words that we all encompass now in the one overused and watered-down word, love. There are multiple ways of talking about love in the Bible, and we only have one word to go by uh, in, in English. Love. We use it for everything. Everything. The, the good way to think about this is that there's multiple words. You think of this like Inuit, Eskimo, uh, natives in, in Alaska or, or north of British Columbia. They have multiple words for snow, right? Because if you live in Alaska... Your concept of snow is intimate and thorough, right? Like, I mean, you, oh, that's that. I mean, you, oh, it's snowing, right? Because it, it, usually, for most part of the world, it's like it's snowing means it's just there's something falling out of the sky. But if you're intimate with snow, for instance, like we are, there's different kinds of snow, right? There's like the meh, I'm going to keep working. There's the let's go out and play kind of snow. And then there's the other stuff, right? There's the, the it, it snows sideways, right? Like, and there's, and there's like, there's multiple concepts for that. In the same way, the Bible wants to give you a thorough and intimate, experiential language for love. 
And that's tough because our <laughs> current, the English language as it sits, and even our, col- our culture as it sits, uses love for a variety of things, meaning nothing. Right? I love french fries. I do. But I love my wife. And it's like, are you saying you love french fries like you love your wife? And so you want to be careful that you use the right words, don't you think? Don't you think you would not want to lump the two together? Now this is important for us because our culture thinks of love in a way that's unhelpful when the word here, ahava, I love the Lord, in verse 1 of 116 communicates adoration and affection. This picture of love here is the word of commitment. It's the word of steadfastness. It's the word of, of, of sacrifice. I love something. I, I am willing to lay down myself for something. The, the kind of love that gives. This love is an investment. Now that's important because our, our culture uses love in the exact opposite. When we think in terms of love, here in verse 1, we're meant to think about love in terms of giving, investing. I love, therefore I, I give of myself. Whereas what we usually think of as love in our culture is I receive something. Now I've illustrated this for you uh, before. It's kind of, again, we use the word love for multiple things and we have to be careful what we really mean, right? I love my wife, but I also love cows. I love them. Love cows. All right? But think about what I really mean when I say I love my wife versus I love cows. I love cows. Do you know how much I love cows? I love cows so much that I don't mind that they're subjected to, to trafficking and slavery and confinement for the rest of their entire lives. They're defiled and, and managed. Just uh, look up animal husbandry for all you 4-H and FFA friends of mine, right? I, I'm okay with that happening. I'm okay with them locking them up. and I'm okay with them putting them on a freezing cold truck that takes them somewhere where they get shot, cut up into pieces, and served on a plate. And when I say I love cows, that's what I mean. I mean I'm actually okay with them being plundered and, and pillaged. and just, I mean, their, their freedom is taken. I know, again, I, know, I know this offends you. I know there's some of you like, that's, I know, I'm right with you. That's weird, right? I love cows. But what I mean is I love the end result that gives me pleasure and satisfaction. I don't have any investment into them. I don't, I don't care about their well-being. I don't care about their emotional stability. I don't care about any of that. In fact, if, I mean, it, this, is, this, is, this, is our, this is our, you know, industrial food complex that we live in. We're okay with that because we'll get the pleasure that comes from it. And I'm afraid that, that when most people say they love a person, like a spouse, they love a friend, or they love, God help us, Jesus, when they look at this word and they say, I love God, what they really mean is, I love God like I love cows. Don't care about them. I only care about the pleasure that I derive from them. That is an unbiblical love. (laughs) That is the opposite of the kind of love we see here in verse 1. The love we see here for the Lord is not, I love the Lord so much that I don't really care or want to glorify Him. I only really like Him when I get what I want. Chop Him up and serve Him on a plate for my pleasure like I want it. And most people, when they say they love something, I fear that's really what they mean. So I want to invite you into this. This is... This, the introduction of this psalm is an invitation into a completely radically countercultural view of love. This kind of love that says, I, I, don't, I don't just love something because it's chopped up and served up to me. This kind of love says, I will be chopped up. 
I will lay my own life aside for the sake of someone else. Radically opposite, radically different. And I hope I use every opportunity I get to make that clear. That when we say I love Jesus, we're not just saying I really like the benefits. We're saying I want to lay down my life because he's worth it. This affection for God is a worthy affection. It's a worthy praise. It's esteeming and valuing something that in the case of the first verse here is of inestimable worth. You're saying to God, you have everything. You are worth everything. You are, you are incalculably glorious. You are, you are more infinitely worthy of everything. If, if you put the scale up and you put God and His glory and His infinite majesty and worth and you put everything else that you know, this becomes completely infinitesimal. It becomes insignificant. That's how worthy God is of our praise. That's the picture here. The love of God for who He is. You see, it unfolds His character even. God is what we see uh, in verse 5. He's gracious, He's righteous, He's merciful. We love Him for who He is. That's important. That, because secondarily, not only just, you know, we don't just love people or, or love things uh, for, for the benefit, we, we love them for who they are. The way I would say this to you on a regular basis, like, I love Wendy's Frosties, okay? So if you take me to go eat Wendy's Frosties and, uh, like, you buy me a Frosty, I love you. I do. But there's a sense in which if I only hang out with you to get Wendy's Frosties, I don't love you. I just love what I get from you. I'm just using you. And friend, Beware, most of what gets passed as Christianity, what most people who would call themselves Christians really believe is, I really like Jesus because one day he's going to give me all the stuff I really actually want. And ask them about their picture of heaven. Their picture of heaven is some materialistic, like, I mean, it could just be Boca Raton, Boca Raton or Hollywood. I mean, it's just like, I get a, I get a mansion on a hillside. There's no, there's no talk of the inestimable worth of God and the amazing grace that he's demonstrated for us in Christ. There's just a, here's what I get, here's what I want. I want you to see the love that we have is a, is a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a, it's a spending kind of love. We love God for who he is. And then we see why. What is it that we love about God? We love what he has done. So we saw this for the last several psalms, but this is kind of the theme of most of the psalms that call us to praise our hope and comfort in who is in who God is and what God has done. So we see right here both of them. I love the Lord. He's awesome. His character beginning in verse 5, but the end of verse 1 gives us three pretty important things. I love the Lord. Why? Because what has he done? He has heard my voice. He has heard my pleas, but not only has he tolerated listening and hearing, uh, listening to and hearing us, but it says that he now inclines his ear. Right? Th- think about what that, the, the language here is implying. Right? Have you ever been in a loud room, uh, uh, you know, a space where you can't hear and you can't understand? Someone tries to speak to you, and what do you do? What do you do? You're like, again, louder. I want to hear. I don't want to miss this. You, you kind of like perk your ear up and you, you lean in so that the things around you might be drowned out and you can hear with clarity the thing that you want to listen to. I want to encourage you, even, even with just the first verse here, listen to the picture of God. Have you ever tried praying and felt like it just kind of like dissipated into nothingness? You ever asked God for something and wondered if there was anyone even listening? 
Maybe you're in this room. Uh, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus. I'm really glad you're here because I want you to hear this good news of what we really believe about who God is. We really believe this radical and miraculous thing that God doesn't just tolerate us, but he actually eagerly postures himself to listen to us. He desires communion with us. And we love him because of it. We love him. He's of inestimable worth, but then it says, I mean, like, there's a reason why most of you don't have really famous or really wealthy people on your speed dial, right? For the most of us, I mean, the top one, one, one thousandth of the percent of, of Americans, like, we don't know them, right? And why? Because you're not really worthy. Truthfully, they're extremely wealthy, they're extremely important, and we're not in the grand scheme of things. And so just to acknowledge that God is of inestimable worth is one thing, but to secondarily say that God, the God of inestimable, wor- inestimable worth actually listens to us, actually inclines his ear to us, oh, friend, don't miss the kind of joy and comfort that grants. It's important because I think one of the most, uh, one of the most clamored for things in our present society, and you can see this the most in uh, in social media is we just want to be heard. We just want to be heard. And that's why one of the most, most profound complaints someone can tell, can say to you, like, you don't really know what I'm talking about. You don't really know what I'm trying to say. If you don't believe me, just scroll through Facebook. Scroll through whatever your preferred form of social media is. And if you're not, just borrow someone else's. Some of your friends has. Fight the good fight, but borrow someone else's. And you'll see what I'm talking about. People are clamoring to be heard. They are terrified that no one hears them. You seen this one? So much so that when they don't want to be heard, they cry out to be heard. You seen this? You, you been this maybe? I'm going to step on your toes here, maybe on your soul. I don't know. But like, like they're like, you know what, guy? I'm going to, you know the post? Like, I'm getting off of social media. I'm just tired of all this, and I just need a break from this, and I, I don't want to deal with it. And like, you, you're doing the thing that you, what? You're like, I just can't handle all the drama on social media. He's like, you're adding to it. What? Do, do you hear it? Do you hear at the depths of their own soul a cry to be heard? You see it for what it is? A desire to be liked. Someone pay attention to me. Someone value me. Oh, friend, that thing you're clamoring for, that thing that you're, you're driving all your friends crazy to get from them, is freely given to you in the merciful God of the Bible. He hears you. And I, don't, I love that. It doesn't just hear you. Like I, I get it. I hear what you're saying. It says He inclines His ear to you. Our God postures himself to hear us. Our God postures himself to commune with his people. Oh, friend, that's what Jesus is. That our God didn't just sit up there and out there and rule and reign over the universe, distant and separate from his creation, but our God lowered himself. The Bible tells us that he emptied himself, poured himself out to be one of us so that you will never be able to say, you don't know how it feels. No, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He was tempted in the same ways that you and I are tempted to demonstrate for us the truth in Psalm 116, verse 1. Oh, we have a God who bends low to incline his ear to you and to me. Christ has opened and made 
the way for us. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple, the, the symbolic separation between the presence of God and the presence of broken, fallen humanity was torn from the top to the bottom. It was torn from the top so you would know who tore it. And it was torn from the top to the bottom to demonstrate this truth. Our God hears our pleas. And he inclines his ear to us. Therefore, verse 2, therefore, what do we do in response? We have love and affection, a giving, sending, selfless love because of what God has done for us. He hears us. He inclines himself to us. Therefore, I will do what? I will call on him as long as I live. This is one of four different times in this psalm that we hear this phrase. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will call on the Lord. I will call on the Lord. So that you would get it in your head. Remember the thing that you wake up in the morning and it's kind of echoing in your brain? This is the thing that's supposed to be in your head. I will call on the Lord. What will I do today? I will call on the name of the Lord. What will I do after that? I will call on the name of the Lord. And I'm going to eat. What should I do then? Call on the name of the Lord. What about after that? What about in trouble? Call on the name of the Lord. Do you get it? Hebrew poetry doesn't use rhyme or meter the same way that we would understand, say, like Western uh, post-Latin kind of, uh, of poetry. Hebrew poetry uses repetition. It's a silent and, and subtle and nice way of saying that I know you're going to forget this, right? I will call on the name of the Lord. Why? Why would we do so? Because we know that he listens. I will call on the name of the Lord. When? As long as I live. And then he goes into this little litany that we, we suspect and most commentarians think is probably in, like, either by sickness or some sort of threat of life. He, like he, he was at the end of his life. He was on death's doorstep. right? He had this vision of his own death. It says, I, I will call on the name of the Lord as long as I live. Why? Because in verse 3, the snares of death have encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol. Sheol here is a word that, that sometimes means just simply death or being buried or the depths. Sometimes it means an existential pit, like an existential depth like hell. In this case, it probably just means like death. The snares of death encompass me, the, like the pangs of my own coffin, the pangs, the, the pangs of my own thought of being buried were laying hold of me, and I suffered distress and anguish, and I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And then there's this picture. God is gracious, he's righteous, he's merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I want to define another term here. Now, now I'm, I, I began looking at this uh, several uh, weeks ago when we were in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is, is kind of a precursor to Psalm 119, a reflection of the re- revelation of God in nature, but also the revelation of God in his word. And there's a phrase there in verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Remember, it's like the principles of the Lord are good. His rules are right, right? He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Then it says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That phrase, that, or that, that word simple, do you see it here? It says in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. There's a powerful thing being uh, put on display here, the, the, the definition of this word simple. Like we, we would think of it as somebody who is a dullard or someone who is maybe underdeveloped or incapacitated mentally, someone who is not that bright. And that's exactly what we see in verse 7 of Psalm 19, saying that God's Law, his word begins to shape. It revives our soul, but then it makes the foolish into wise people. But that word is interesting. That word simple, it's it's difficult to to define here. And so that word simple is synonymous with the word in, in the Hebrew of open door. It makes wise the open door. Now I want to camp on that for just a minute before we kind of turn away from it. So it says here that he 
restores and he preserves those simple, the people who are an open door. And there's a profound little biblical wisdom found in that word. Because right now, the, the height of human expression at the moment is the person who is not close-minded. That's an insult, right? You're close-minded. And you ought to be open-minded. You ought to be open to ideas. You ought to be open to all sorts of new experiences, open to different kinds of, you name it, uh, people, choices, you name it. Just, and, and if you're close-minded, you're doing something bad. And it has like a moral quality to it, right? So you, you're close-minded about that. And, and you see this, this interesting thing, like to be fully open-minded, for the person whose mind is utterly open, the Bible calls foolish. The word here is simple. It's unwise. And the Bible offers a really powerful third way in terms of wisdom. Because right? the person who's closed-minded, like their brain is closed off, those people won't experience truth because they just look inside themselves to find truth and it's an echo chamber in there. And in the, in the vast gaping hole of of the, the human soul, like there's this an echo chamber of nothingness. And that closed-minded person is unable to learn, unable to grow, unable to experience any, anything new. That person is shadowed by fear. But what we find is that same kind of, that kind of, that same kind of like fear actually exists in the person who is completely open-minded as well. You see, postmodernism isn't new. The idea that the question is the answer, it's not new. The idea of just like only tearing down modern or, or preconceived ideas is not new. The Bible calls that simple. If you're only an open door, like if I ask you who you are and you don't know the answer because you're still finding yourself, blah, whatever that means, usually when people are finding themselves, sorry, they actually found themselves and they're running from themselves. That's the truth on that one. So like, so people who like are open to anything, they're not sure who they really are just yet, the Bible says you're simple. And the Bible says your problem isn't that you haven't found yourself. The problem is that you don't really know who you are. You don't see the image of God born in you. You don't realize that the Creator crafted you and wanted to use you as a, as a, as a crystal to refract His image to the world. And we find in Psalm 19 and again here, there's a powerful biblical wisdom. Real wisdom isn't just being closed off to everything, and real wisdom isn't being open to everything. Real wisdom is knowing the difference. I, I think of it this way. It's like, uh, it's like the difference between education and indoctrination. And they're both incredibly important. Uh, education, by definition, is a broadening of horizons. But, Indoctrination is, by definition, a narrowing of horizons. And they're both a key component in biblical wisdom. Now, most people kind of like lean on one side or the other. And you probably know who you are, right? You're like, no, what people need is education. They need their, broad they need their horizons broadened. If anything bad happens, they just need to be educated. Well, okay, that's true. Or some people are like, no, they just need to be indoctrinated. They need to know what to believe. They're both important. Think about how you learned history, right? July 4th, 1776, what happened? Declaration of Independence. That's indoctrination. That's, that's, you, you know that. That, day, that. You don't get to argue that. Now, it's, yet you maybe need to be open to the possibility. Maybe it wasn't July 4th. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't. Maybe they didn't really do it. Maybe, that, maybe it's not really what happened. And education means broadening your horizons to the possibility of something different. But at a certain point, you can't just say, no one really knows when the Declaration of Independence was signed, right? 
At a certain point, you, you, you lay aside the closed-mindedness of something else and the open-mindedness of something else, and you go, no, this is, this is what happens and this is what it means. Biblical wisdom involves both. It says that there is a wisdom that comes from God that you ought to open your mind to, but then again, there's a wisdom that comes from God. It's not, it's not abstract entirely. There's a closing off. There is a wisdom, but there is a foolishness. And you see this theme recurring in the Psalms, and you see it show up not only in Psalm 19, but you see here again in Psalm 116. So lest you be discouraged that you are foolish, or, or maybe you're too open-minded or too closed-minded, look what it tells us God does for the, for the foolish closed-minded and the foolish open-minded. You see what it says? The Lord preserves them. The Lord preserves the simple. If you ever find yourself having questions that you just don't know the answer to, so much that you're even scared to ask them. Friend, I want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe you don't need the answer. Maybe you'll never get the answer. Maybe what you need to know is that the Lord will preserve you even though you don't know the answer to that question. And maybe the, maybe the simplicity the, that you currently live in right now, maybe it's to show you how much you need the sustenance of God despite having no answer. What does he tell us? He preserves the simple and then he explains it a little more. For when I was brought low. Make sure you get that. When I was brought low. Most people think as soon as I'm up, as soon as I'm out, as soon as I'm on, I'm on a roll, I'm succeeding. That's when, that's when loving, following God, being the, the, the person God has created me, that, that's when I'm who I'm supposed to be. What does it say here? It was when I was brought low that he saved me. And so he says, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul. Notice not just my life. You've delivered my soul from death. There is a, a death, evidently, not only of your own life, like that will happen to all of us. We'll talk more about that next week. But there is a death that happens to the soul. And evidently, God in his mercy has delivered this person. Verse 10, he says, I believe. We'll talk more next week in 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul even quotes this to help explain the resurrection. And then verse 12, something amazing happens that we see. There's two things. There's a repayment and then there's a praise. So here's how I would put this. God's goodness in hearing and answer our, answering our prayers leads us to continual thanksgiving, praise, and then sustained prayer and communion with him. Because God hears us, we can now, out of the wealth that he has given us, respond in gratitude and praise. So here's two things. I'm going to do them out of order, uh, and you'll see why. We're going to end uh, our time together by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so this, um, this thing that happens in verse 13, uh, this, this call to thanksgiving and rendering to the Lord what he's ultimately lent to us, we see in verse 13. But then the end of the thing is what I want you to see. It says, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, I will pay my vows. In the presence of all people, I will, I will fulfill the promise. I will be the person God has created me to be now that he's shown mercy to me. And then it says, praise the Lord. Now, I want you to understand that word praise the Lord is, is two things about it. First of all, you need to know, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew that you already knew. That word is hallelujah. So you've been, you knew Hebrew, you just didn't know it. Anytime you've said the word hallelujah, even if you use it for something silly, like I got a parking spot, hallelujah, right? You, you are declaring praise. It's a, that's a Hebrew phrase that means praise 
the Lord. But the second thing I want you to realize is the tense of it, okay? I want you to I'm give you a little grammar lesson here, invite you into my grammar nerd world. It's imperative. It is second person plural imperative. That means it is a command. It is a directive. It is not, it is not a suggestion. It is a command. And so the response to being delivered from all of these things, from being saved by God's bountiful mercy, is that they stand up and you, dec- you command, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He deserves it. You must praise the Lord. What does this mean? This means that to not praise the Lord is actually disobedience. To not praise the Lord is to rebel against God. Here's where I think this lands on us. Praise is the end result. Praise is obedience. And I'll say more about this next week, but I want to draw attention to this just for a couple of minutes. We'll come back. Praise is the end result. We see God as the only worthy and supreme being. And that for us is the cure for everything. Um, I, th- I, I don't know, what a little gift of God. I don't know, uh, I don't know if you kind of saw this, but like, uh, what a little gift of God that uh, a sermon that Andy was preparing to preach on Galatians 2 about how God reconciles the Jews and the Gentiles, these two ethnicities that are like been duking it out. What a gift of God that he's preparing the sermon. We scheduled this a long time ago. He wrote that sermon a long time, let's be honest. Um, I scared him once. I said, hey, I may, may, not make a may, may, uh, may not make my plane back. And he was, I was like, be ready. And he was like, ah, he went home and wrote a sermon on Gal- Galatians 2. And what a gift, what a little mercy that God gave us, right? that he would talk about being reconciled to God and then reconciled to one another like we see in Galatians 2 on the weekend of Charlottesville, Virginia. What a little gift. And we see here, like, praise is the end result because when praise happens, when God is supreme, it kills self-supremacy. Praise kills self-supremacy. Praise kills the desire in us to think that we are better that we somehow deserve some sort of glory. We, we don't. We see God as worthy of, deserving, worthy of glory and deserving of praise. And praise kills this. Now, this ought to be nothing new. Like, I, I know a lot of people are like, they feel the need to stand up and say, like, white supremacy is bad. Uh, and, and they're surprised that we're still having to say these kinds of things. But if you've been hanging out with us for the last couple of years, right, we talk about this all the time. If you don't believe me, like, if you were here literally last year in Psalm chapter 2, July the 24th, some of you haven't been around. We talk, In Psalm chapter 2, we see, it says, why do the nations raise? In this messianic psalm, longing for the coming king. And he talks about systemic injustice that happens among the people. And we talk, remember, like, so if you have a bunch of sinners who run things, they build things that are sinful. Sinful people build sinful systems. And so Christians of all people shouldn't be surprised when there are systems of injustice that exist. They're run by unjust people. They're run by systems built by sinful people. What do you think was going to happen? And it's like, and, and of all people, Christians are not surprised. We are humble as we approach this. When you get a bunch of criminals in the same room, it, it doesn't, you don't get to just call it like a, a church. It's called organized crime. You get a bunch of criminals together and they start to plot on how they can do worse things. It's not the presence of criminals that makes it okay. It's the presence of Christ that redeems it. Okay, and so when people who are sinful and corrupt people who think that they're better than everyone, they, you know, they get together and build systems, types, things like white supremacy come out. They happen. 
We shouldn't be surprised by it. And so this will hit you in one of two ways. Because I want you to know, you are a self-supremacist. You really think you're the supreme being. And you thought that since you were born. You were like, wham, I don't like this. Wham, I want that. You didn't even have words to put it. But you were like, wham, me, wham, me. I'm tired, wham, my diaper, wham. You, you didn't know how to put into words, but you were a self-supremacist. You were like, you, you look at me. Everyone, me, give me, 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 me. That's you. And so you shouldn't be surprised when people begin to build systems or build groups around their self-supremacy. You do too. And this is important for us because God's supremacy, Christ's supremacy, kills white supremacy. At the foot of the cross where we are all humbled by the price that had to be paid to rescue us, at the foot of the cross, there's a strange thing that happens. You're just full of gratitude. (laughs) How could God save me? And then the good news of God's love causes us to confess our own self-supremacy. We saw this again a few weeks ago. Remember this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4? We talk about this on a regular basis. The gospel digs this up. It digs this into our heart. It digs against our self-supremacy. The wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon looks to a coming king because he says that there's corruption that exists. But here's what I know. You'll never be able to work for justice or reconciliation until you face God and see him as the supreme being. Because before him, no one can stand. Before him, no one can survive. Much less boast. No one in the presence of God can go, no, we're awesome. My team's the best. Before God, all you do, you either, you either are incinerated or you bow and worship. And that's a beautiful thing for us because it allows us to do two things. It allows us to call that out when we see it. But there's a powerful thing that happens when we do that. We actually don't think that the worst white supremacists or self-supremacists happen, like gathered in Charlottesville. On a regular basis, every Sunday we get together, we believe actually the worst white supremacists are in this room. They're in the mirror. Now, maybe you're not white like me, but you love yourself. And we know. We know. You can tell it in, like, you can tell it in who you hang out with. You can tell the people you gather around you. And Christians, before, <laughs> before the presence of God, are the ones who are willing to admit it. It's easy to just go, oh, them over there, they got problems. They're awful. Oh, friend, the gospel is not that the problem's out there and that you can solve it. The gospel is that the problem's in you and there's a solution in Christ. And Christ is supreme. And he offers us to lay that down. The second thing it does is it allows us to begin to show mercy. When you begin to realize this exists in you, you can admit it. So I mean, here's, we, live, we live in a very homogenous part of the world, the upper Midwest, and it's very tempting for us to think, well, oh, yeah, that's a problem over there. That's only because if we've created systems of, of I mean, a very hom- homogenous, we've created homogenous systems of white people in the upper Midwest. And it's very easy for us to go like, that's a problem with them. Friend, no. That's not their problem. That's your problem. It's my problem. I am a white supremacist. Because I'm white. I'm a Jonathan supremacist. Because I'm Jonathan. I think I'm best, and I wish other people would worship me. And so when I see it, it's easy to call out, but the second thing is easy to offer forgiveness. Don't listen to just the rage that goes on in our culture. This sin is worse than the rest. No, no, this sin is something that was nailed to the cross and canceled 
by Jesus as well. And so if you're in this room and you're like, man, I really, I really don't like people that are different from me. I really don't like people that don't look like me. I don't like people that don't think and act like me. Friend, you're in good company. You're in good company. The gospel draws this out, but then we're able to confess it because we know that it's redeemed and covered by the blood of the Lamb. You are a you supremacist. Before him, there was nothing but praise. Before him, we have a real God-given equality. Before one another, we just simply starve ourselves. And so we're the first people to call out self-supremacy. One of the things that I hear a lot of people talking about, well, I have, you know, because this is built around a, a kind of racist systems that have existed in our country. And they're like, well, I don't think we should, you know, tear down these monuments. Like, I have, I have ancestors that fought in the, in, the, in the Confederate Army, right? This is different for us because we, we live in South Dakota, not the Deep South, right? So it's kind of weird for us. But, but you'll hear people say, like, well, yeah, I have ancestors that, that fought in, you know, they were rebels. And I want to be like, me too. I have an ancestor, and he led one of the greatest rebellions in all the world. You should know who he is. His name's Adam. And he's my father. And I regularly want to erect all sorts of monuments to my father, Adam. They glorify me. They glorify the creation and not the creator. I too want to have civil war reenactments. I want to reenact the conflict that existed when my father, Adam, rebelled against his creator. I want to do that. I do it all the time. I reenact. I act just like Adam. I do it with my wife. I blame things on her. It was the woman. And I abdicate my own responsibility. I'm reenacting a great rebellion. Friend, this is not new in the United States. This is human nature. And so we are the first people to call it out. We're able to see it and say, look, there's hope here. And praise is the cure. And when you praise God above everything else, you see things rightly. And you start to love people who you disagree with, either because they look different or because they believe different. And don't be, don't be surprised. I said, this, I said this when we talked about this last July. I said this when we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The next time some bitter, racist, awful thing or some you know, atrocity happens, we're not surprised. Because we know that's what the human heart's capable of all the time. What do we do? Our response is praise. Did you catch this? What shall I render to the Lord what, for what benefits that he's given me? And there's three things, and the first one's the most important, and we're going to talk about it today. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. In a minute here, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and celebrate that the body of Christ and the blood of Christ was broken and shed for you and for me. And that's interesting because there's something powerful going on here. Every time the Old Testament refers to a cup, drinking of a cup or holding of a cup, it almost always refers to judgment and the wrath of God. You see this in Jesus, remember? They're like, hey, we, you know, we want to be at your right hand and left hand. And Jesus is like, you don't really know what you're asking. He's like, oh, we do. And they're like, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And what was he talking about? He's talking about, can you drink the, the martyrdom, being uh, suffering and publicly humiliated? Can you drink that? And they're like, yeah, we can. He's like, well, you're right. I mean, you're all going to die. Uh, but you don't really know what you're talking about. And he's referring to the cup of judgment. But something weird shows up here. Did you catch it? It's not a cup in reference to judgment. It's a cup in reference to salvation. It says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. There's, there's this picture of two things. It's like a, like, not, don't think cheers, like, hey, raise your glass, but think, think I want more. Think of a child who's given, given a drink and they drink it all and they go, more, I want more. And he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I don't know if you caught it. 
the cup that usually means wrath and judgment, the cup, of, the cup of destruction that these people deserve, the cup of destruction and judgment and punishment that you and I deserve, we don't lift up. What do we do? We lift up a cup of salvation because in Jesus, the cup of wrath and the cup of salvation are the same. And we celebrate that Jesus took the wrath so that we celebrate the salvation. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate something that happens uh, on a regular basis. And so we want to prepare for this. Uh, 1 Corinthians puts it this way. Paul begins to share what it is that they're celebrating in the cup of salvation. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What? That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he also took the cup. And that's a powerful thing to say for Jesus, isn't it? Oh, he took the cup. Indeed, he took the cup. He took the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. What did he say? He says, this cup is something special. It's a new covenant that's in my blood. This cup is not the cup of God's wrath and judgment. This cup is the cup that we see in Psalm 116. The cup we raise because God is merciful. So, so, so he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we're going to do. In just a moment here, we're going to, I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to prepare our own hearts to celebrate this, and someone's going to come and declare you a mystery. And so we're going we're to, in a minute here, we'll, we'll, we'll take this morning's offering, then we'll sing together, and then we're going to be invited to, to, as you're ready, to work your way back toward the, the back of the room, and someone's going to declare a mystery, and they're going to hand you something strange. They're going to break off a little piece of bread, and they're going to say something crazy. They're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And they're going to say the blood of Christ shed for you. And we'll take the, the bread and we'll dip it into the juice and we'll consume it. And, and for many of you, maybe if you're not a Christian, I don't encourage you to be a part of this because that will just be a very unsatisfying little, it'll be a very unsatisfying snack. But for us who are in Christ, those words that come right out of Psalm 116 are powerful. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and not our own. And someone declares a mystery, the body of Christ broken for you. You. For you. And the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you so that now in Christ we don't look to the cup and find wrath and judgment, but instead we come to the cup and we hold it up and say, this is the cup of my salvation. This is my hope. This is the thing that casts out all my own hate, casts out my sin, and casts out the darkness that exists in my soul. Let's pray together as we prepare to take this cup. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for your kindness over us. It is undeserved. We want to prepare now to to respond in praise. We want to come to the table with our own issues, with our own sin, with our own brokenness, with our own frailty. And we are hungry. We are longing to be healed, to be restored. So if there's some in this room that maybe uh, they wouldn't call themselves believers in Jesus, would you begin to show them the truth? Psalm 116 in the first verse, you hear and not only do you hear, but you've inclined your voice, or excuse me, you've inclined your ear to hear their voice. Maybe today would be the first day they would cry out to you. 
If you've never done that and you're in this room today, call out to him. Look to him. Look to him for hope. Look to him for satisfaction. Admit that you've been trying to be satisfied in all these other things and, and you just haven't found it. Would you cry out to him? Would you call out to him? His ear is inclined to you. We know this because of what Jesus has done. So as we begin to prepare to take the body and the blood of Jesus into our own bodies, would you begin to satisfy us in a deep and powerful way? Would this little piece of bread be the body of Christ that took our place on the cross? Would this cup be the blood of Christ that was poured out instead of ours? Would it be the source of justice? Would it be the place that we are humbled and realize that you are supreme and we would cast out all other self-supremacy? Be exalted in these moments as we prepare to celebrate your goodness and hold up the cup of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.